This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. I hope you keep him well. Been really nice to receive some great messages of late about the podcast. Uh, or whilst I was in Macedonia, a couple of people said that they enjoyed listening to it. Very kind of you to say so and very much appreciated. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch or just want to reach out and say hi, please don't hesitate. Uh, You can do it all on social media. The podcast is there, Twitter, Facebook, Threads, Instagram. uh, Or you can send me an email, 3lionspodcast at gmail.com. And it's on YouTube too. If you've got any ideas for the show or would like to contribute maybe to the Your England Journey series, don't be shy. I'm all ears. Now, this is an episode that I'm hoping you'll not only enjoy, but find educational too. With no further ado, this is my chat with Matt Tiller. He has written a book about Jack Leslie. The name may ring a bell, or perhaps it doesn't. Listen and learn. Over the years, England have been involved in some many controversial stories, both on and off the pitch. Some we know about, some that are resolved, uh, some we're still learning about. But one in recent years has come to light, and it's a story that's now able to be told. It's my pleasure to welcome to the Three Lions podcast author of the book, The Lion Who Never Roared. Jack Leslie, the star robbed of England glory. Uh, welcome along, Plymouth Argyle and England fan, Matt Tiller. Hello, Matt. Hi, Russell. Thanks for having me. No, thank you for, thank you for coming on board. What I, uh, Not at all. What an interesting story this is. Yeah, it's a, it's a hell of a story. I mean, it's, you know, as a Plymouth Argyle fan, when I, yeah, you know, Jack Leslie's in the record books, but then when you, it was only a few years ago. But I really found out about the England story. And at first I was like, this can't be right. It's got to be sort of blown up out of all proportion. Um, you know, um, by, by, I learned the story at a, a bar when I uh, met a, another Argyle fan. Um, you always get sort of end up getting introduced. And he started telling me he was an older guy than me and started telling me the story. I thought, well, I'm going to have to, you know, check this out. And uh, as soon as I got home, uh, started Googling. I was like, oh. This really is true, and the more that I read, there was you know lots of actual like proper articles um uh, online from academics and stuff, um and and times over the years when it has been mentioned, but it's kind of sort of risen to the surface briefly and then kind of you know disappeared again. And um yeah, it it's true. Jack Leslie was the first black player to be selected for England in 1925. Well, I I think I first heard of the story. Possibly shortly after yourself, I think it was like a news article, a BBC news mm. article, and I seem to remember 
hearing it then and thinking, oh, that's interesting. I ought to dig a bit deeper. And, and to be honest, I, I, I didn't. And it was only um, a couple of England programs, match day programs back. And I've, I've been back through them. Uh, there mm. was one in a, a Ukraine, one in March, and, and then there was one in Italy in October, which sort of nicely rounds it up. Yes. Um, but it was only then that I thought, actually, I remember this story. Um, and, uh, mm. and it's, it's nice to be able to see how it's all evolved in, in your book. Um, and first of all, I want to say not only is it an enjoyable read, Thank but you. it's an, it's an educational read too. Um, it, it's really good. So congratulations on it. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, it, it's been a, an amazing thing to do. Obviously, I've been involved in setting up the campaign, but it's 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 made me think more deeply about what happened to Jack, and it's just been a real privilege. Well, perhaps just introduce yourself, um, and then take us. Like you, you've mentioned about meeting up in the pub and and yes, sort of encountering this story. But but where did it go from there? Well, well. Um, I mean, I've been a Plymouth Argyle fan since the mid eighties. Um, I, I, I ended up in Plymouth when I was about, um, four. My dad was in the army and they were well, not really a football family. So it was a bit later that school friends, um, started sort of taking me along to Argyle. And since then we had this big cup run in 86, uh, 84. Um, I was too young. My parents wouldn't allow me to go to the semi final against Watford where I'd have seen, uh, John Barnes play against, um, <laughs> Uh, for play for Watford against Argyle and it was a narrow um win for them but um but there was a huge buzz in the city and um and then I started going and we, we were pretty good in the 80s up and down in the 90s but um but yeah I've I've been an Argyle fan ever since and I go whenever I can I go I'm based in London so I go to uh, away games and um yeah once I sort of heard the story um through this this guy that I was introduced to Tony Fitzgerald I then started telling my mates who were all, you know, not, you know, a lot of them are Argyle fans. And, um, when I was chatting to my friend, Greg Foxsmith, who is chair of the, the London supporters group for Argyle, he was just like, we've, we've got to do something about this. And he's a real sort of campaigning lawyer. And, and so we just kind of had fire in our bellies really. And, um, started talking to people about it. And yeah, everything was a bit crazy in 2020 when we, we launched, we were about to launch and then COVID hit. And um, we thought, well, this is it. It'll all have to be go on hold now. There's no football. We're not going to be able to raise any money. And then murder of George Floyd, the Colston statue came down in Bristol and we had a website up and suddenly we got a load of attention and the um, BBC news, Greg had a contact and he wanted to do the story. And and we were just talking to each other and said, we're never going to get this opportunity again. They wanted to um, tell the story on the national news for the BBC and so we we just went for it and um and it got picked up everywhere and yeah we managed to raise a hundred thousand pounds or more than that in six weeks um to to build a statue of jack outside home park so it was, it was just it was immense it was um insane it was just one of the best things that we've done and amazingly greg and i are still talking to each other and still going to argyle matches oh, amazing i mean all all of that that's happened within the space of what four years four and a bit years yeah not not even that i mean it's at 2019 that we 
first started talking about it and then talking to Argyle and we've got fantastic new owner Simon Hallett and he was already on board with celebrating Jack because they were um we spoke to him and he said can you just like hang on a moment because we're about to name the boardroom in the new grandstand after him and and we were sort of respected that because we didn't want to make it look like we you know we were putting pressure on him to do that because it was already they were already planning to do that so yeah um so we we that happened and um and the, and the club has embraced it and um and and even when the statue was unveiled a year ago things still you know have moved on in an, an amazing way because the england recognition um you know obviously the the statue unveiling for us argyle fans and for well, the whole football community but for jack's family there's three granddaughters still with us and you know f- for them the story had kind of you know, they knew it, but said whenever they talked to people about it, people would kind of just glaze over and say that's not true. And and um and having this recognition has has been massive for them. And then when the FA, who had effectively denied it for nearly a century, um actually changed their mind and said, and this was before um the, the England Nations League game against Germany in September, um Last year, Debbie Hewitt um, said Jack Leslie was the first black player to be selected for England. And up to that point, they'd just denied that fact. Um, even though, you know, when we started the campaign, they supported us financially and said, you know, a sort of vague but nice quote. Um, they, we asked, you know, would you give Jack um, an honorary cap? And it was a flat no. Um, but then when we were able to speak to Debbie Hewitt, who'd come in off, after Greg Clark's ignominious demise, <laughs> um, uh, she actually read, you know, I'd done a lot of research w- with other people's help who'd uh, already looked into the story and she read it. She oh, actually right. took the time to, to read sort of, it's a, a long article on our website and, um, and, and then rang us up within days and said, I'm going to try and do something about this. And and she did. Within a few weeks, she got um, the go-ahead to award Jack the posthumous honorary England cap, which was then presented ahead of that Ukraine game that you mentioned. That's right. I remember it now. Yeah. No, bravo, Debbie, I think, really. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Just And, you know, lots of other people helped. Paul Elliott, who was there at that September game, legend. Um, And, you know, someone who followed in Jack's, footsteps as a pioneering black footballer um so yeah it was that was an immense moment good stuff well let's let's find a a little bit more out about jack obviously Mm. love love people to to go and go and buy the book and um and and find it all out about themselves so i don't want to give too much away a little few teasers um yes but but jack was i mean born 1901 so Mm getting some information on on him must have been been quite tough the the early years were quite tough i mean the the three granddaughters were amazing i started um i'd I'd already done a bit of research for that article that i mentioned that debbie read so i I knew a a fair amount about the england story but what i needed because of covid we've not really been able to meet up so I, i went and spent a couple of days with them went through their folder of photos and the few remaining bits of memorabilia. There's a few medals, but um, 
uh, not enough, um, as as you'll know from reading, he gave yes. he gave a lot of yeah yeah he gave a lot of them away. Um, and um, so they they told me you know the story about his Jack's dad running away from Jamaica at the age of twelve, which was pretty incredible, not uncommon actually, and okay. um, uh, and settling uh, in the end um, here in London and marrying a white woman from islington and they settled in the east end and that's where that's where jack was born in canning town in 1901 um as as you said and so we we knew little bits but um it's amazing what tiny things kind of came to light um even as i was sort of reaching my deadline we we were sent a letter by um a, a journalist in australia who was i think the great grandson of bob jack the plymouth manager and and his grandson had been a journalist and then it's quite a a anyway he had he'd been sent this letter dated the 80s and it was from a a school friend of jack's who said um he'd seen an article um about black footballers that mentioned jack leslie and said i was at school with jack and and, and he'd written down all this information about how he won the london school swimming championship at the age of 14 and how they'd formed their own team because um they used to play youth football for this sort of charitable organization and um there's a bit of evidence there about that but this is the first time i'd seen this they played this um in their own they formed their own team Mm. played in a league set it all up themselves they obviously thought they were too good for I mean, Jack was clearly a phenomenally talented player. Yeah. Um, reached some final that they played at Upton Park. It was the first time I knew that. So he played at Upton Park as a as a teenager. Uh, yeah. So that you know that, that was uh, amazing. But yeah, there was, there was no scant evidence. But I just had to kind of piece it all together. But then as as we get into his football career, there's obviously you know there's loads of cuttings that um, I was able to find. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we've got any Barking Town supporters who listen uh to the podcast but but hello to any barking town fans well, um and they well, will yeah love jack oh, oh yeah they've um they're now a, a barking town when jack played for them um barking fc now and they're a great club um they were a brilliant and you know because there's um um i wouldn't like to describe them as a small club as they're, they're, they're not that but compared to obviously um plymouth or um west ham but they really got on board with um, Jack's story and really embraced him and helped fundraise. And um, yeah, they're a great, great club. And Jack was signed for them. They're an amateur non-league side, um, yeah, signed in 1919 after the First World War. And um, so Jack was was uh, playing uh, on the left wing for, for Barking Town and was, you know, winning plaudits and... I mean, it was it was quite crazy. They were playing in front of sort of five, six, seven, eight thousand people, yeah. and um, and even even in nineteen nineteen, Jack, this was in his first months as a uh, a player at that level, was sort of selected to represent a London league side, and was off playing in France in a tour that was organised by Jules Rimet. Oh, I know, I amazing. We, we, we'll all recognise that name, you yeah. know, if you f- follow international football, follow uh, England. Um, yeah, nuts. Um, so that, what a time to be. I mean, it was just after the First World War, going off to France and playing football. He, he did another tour representing Essex. At the, yeah, it was, yeah. Um, and some of the photos that are in the book, um, yeah, they're, they're really kind of 
moving and evocative of that time, I think. Yeah. Well, he, he was banging the goals in for, for Barking and, and being the, the star there in that league. And there yeah. was the word that the likes of Tottenham, Chelsea, West Ham, Fulham and Portsmouth too were all sort of sniffing around, as it were. Um, mm. He obviously didn't go there, but he was enticed down to Plymouth by yeah. the strangest of ways, wasn't he? Yeah, it's you do sort of wonder. Everyone thinks, oh, if he was so good, why did he play for Plymouth? Which is, oh yeah, was, obviously I find that hurtful as an Argo <laughs> fan, but... But um, it's a fair question to ask. Um, but the the Plymouth uh, manager came and watched um, Barking play Dulwich Hamlet and um, in a cup final that 15,000 people attended in 1921 at the Old Den. And um, uh, eventually went to uh, Jack's house and showed him and his parents postcards of a sunny Plymouth seafront. Now, that's where <laughs> I grew up. And if you've been to watch Plymouth at Home Park, you know, it's very rarely, uh, very rarely sunny. It rains a lot. But they, um, Jack told the, the story um, a, a couple of times, but particularly in an interview with the Daily Mail in 1978, which coincided with Viv Anderson's sort of groundbreaking selection. Yes. And um, yeah, he, he said, you know, his eyes, his parents' eyes popped out and, and, and they were, they, because he'd like he'd learned his trade, he was a boiler maker and had been an imp- apprentice while playing for Barking. They were happy for him to pursue his dream, and thought that this would be an amazing opportunity. And um, and and apparently Plymouth even offered more money than those other clubs, right. um, which you know they, they were really trying then to get. They had um, a sort of a burgeoning team of stars. They were trying to make it up the the ladder. Um, you know they had had. A, a, a huge array of either sort of former or future England internationals. It was quite a crazy time. And um, so for Jack, it was, it was an adventure and um, uh, yeah, he wouldn't have been on the maximum wage at the time as a young player, but Plymouth obviously offered more than the other clubs. And he thought, well, I'll, I'll go. And um, um, yeah. And, and, and that's where his professional football career took off. That's right. And I mean, Plymouth then were, was it third division south? Um, as yeah. How the football structure was back then. So they weren't Premier League equivalent these days. No. Um, so it, it was, it's still quite a move though, especially in distance between Canning Town and, and Plymouth. So it was, it was always going to be a new, new journey for him and, and a lot of going backwards and forwards, uh, on overnight trains as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, you talk about overnight trains. So that's um, uh, <laughs> our record defeat against Everton was. Um, you know, uh, you look at it in the in it, the stats in the record books and go, oh, "That's pretty shameful." Losing I think nine one at, at Everton, but the team had played the day before and then travelled overnight. So um, that's 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 getting the excuses in. It was a very different time, um, and and yeah, they would be you know, spending hours and hours on, on, on trains. But I think Jack had obviously had, you know, he's a, he was a London boy, but he had a sort of sense of adventure just like his dad did and um, to run away from Jamaica. And I think, you know, he embraced that and, and loved being a part of the Plymouth setup, which was, you know, they might say they had Bob Jack's son, David. Um, he ended up playing many times and I think captaining England, um, he scored at that first um, 
Wembley Cup final in 1923, left Plymouth and was at Bolton. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was it was quite a a time at Plymouth. He he went on to sort of stake his claim in the Plymouth team, um, mm. and with, without wanting to, uh, uh, I don't know, belittle Plymouth in any way or, or sort of drive the knife in, it was. Oh, come on, bring it on! <laughs> continuously missing out on promotion oh. by the by the oh. slightest yeah. of whiskers for what was it, five or six seasons in a row? It was six. Uh, Six seasons in a row, Argyle finished runners-up. And in the third division south in the 1920s, that meant you got nothing. (laughs) Only the champions, because you had third division south and north, and one team would go up from each, would go up into the second division. Two would go down from the second. Yes. And then, so, um, so yeah, we were, you know, one of the best teams around, but narrowly missing out on so many occasions. um, And, um, yeah, it, it was. Um, it would have been incredibly frustrating, also for for Plymouth as a team, because that meant they were paying out more in win bonuses. You know, Jack was probably earning more than if he'd been in a higher division, because we won so many games without moving up. That the and, and Argyle, they did have financial problems later in the decade. Um, obviously, it was a tough time financially for the country generally, but um, but um, yeah, they they had some tough times. Um, uh then i think that was part of the reason yeah well well 1924 um whilst jack was sort of a, a mainstay as part of that team there's there's a chapter um in the book about a tour of south america which is yeah. which is fascinating um yeah and whilst i don't want to give too much away about it to say he he made an impression um there and i think Maybe that mm. leading into 1925 when um, he became married um, to win. Um, yeah. Things were then beginning to be on the real up for him. And that's sort of where the the story really comes into itself, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that South America tour was is amazing. So do, yeah, um, it's, uh, it's remarkable when I found out about that. And, um, um, you know, that he was getting plaudits internationally and um and that's where he really established himself and like i said he started at, at barking on the left wing and that's how he, he came to plymouth and there was an experienced left winger that he was basically understudy to but bob jack the manager spotted that maybe he should move him inside and effectively become you know a number 10 an attacking midfielder um obviously the formations were different then but jack uh could score and create goals um and he you know he was bulking up and he he established himself on that south america tour played the next season i think was top scorer um and going into 1925 was one of the first on the team sheet and um he'd also been joined by this incredible scottish winger sammy black and the two of them were were written about across the country you know they the pair of them really were nationally famous. They were, if you were a football fan, you would know Jack Leslie and Sammy Black in the twenties and thirties. And at the start of 1925, like goals were flying in everywhere because there was a change to the offside rule, but Argyle were particularly on fire and, and they were getting recognition for that. Um, Jack's pictured scoring 
um on the opening day of the season and um so it's an amazing picture that's in in the book and it's on the plinth of the statue and that actually inspired the the pose for the statue it's jack wheeling away in celebration that that moment when a striker knows the ball is going in the back of the net and um and that's that pictures in the daily mirror uh, in august uh, 1925 and and it was around it was the next month that the fa were were looking for they put a call out for players um you know for recommendations for um potential england players and jack's name was was put forward and on would the it, 5th of mm, would it have been put forward by the plymouth manager bob jack I mean, I think it, it probably. Would. I don't. We, we don't know that for sure. There's, um, but what we do know is that the FA put that call out and asked for recommendations. And Bob Jack was a really well connected football man, and uh, we know that Jack was selected at the the fifth of October meeting. So, um, I'm I'm sure that he would have been one of the people that would have recommended him. But Jack was actually a. I mean, this is, you know. We can't go into all of this because, but a lot of people ask, oh, well, you know, surely the selectors must have known that he was black if he was that. Well, yes, I, I think they would have done. Um, um, certainly many of them because, yeah. you know, he was in the papers from this time at Barking. He'd, you know, um, some of the selectors would have seen him play without a doubt. And, um, uh, and I believe they se- selected him on uh on on merit and bob jack like i say well connected um there were lots of connections between the fa and plymouth as there would be with every football club but um um argyle had players who had played for england um had players who had been selected for um england while at argyle um this there's some really interesting connections that you should look at in the book but um Yeah, he he was on the 5th of October. The selectors met to choose the team to play um, against Ireland in Belfast later that month. And um, the next day, Jack's name was printed in the team uh, that was published across the country, in newspapers across the country. And um, he was named as one of the two reserves to travel. What that meant, that was 13 players who were picked for England for that game. And that was absolutely massive news in Plymouth and um and Bob Jack the manager um, was the one that gave him the the news and I, um I kind of got the impression reading it he felt so proud being able to give Jack Leslie that news he kind of taken him under his wing hadn't he and that's to Plymouth yeah. and he must have had a big smile that must have been a a nice meeting it, it 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 makes what followed all the more shattering because mm. um bob jack had some of the other players that he brought in from barking the other two players he signed in 1921 had had gone on they'd um, been moved on but it's clear that bob jack felt he had a really special young talent because although jack didn't break into the first team on a regular basis for a few years you you just get that sense that he knew he was good. And from some of the comments that he makes throughout his career, always backing him, it, it, he was like a, you know, if you're a, a sort of Fergie figure to, um, as Fergie was to his players, to Bob Jack was to Jack Leslie. And, and so, cause, and also the, the managers, they're busy people. So for, 
for Bob Jack to call Jack Leslie into his office, Jack would have probably been thinking, oh, well, what's going on? It's just like I'm just turning up for training. And then to be given that news, it would have been immense. And um, and then the banter in the dressing room, you can just imagine it. Because um, you know, in that dressing room, you had a guy called Jack Cock who had played for England and at that point had scored the fastest goal for England yes. after I think it was 19 seconds. So you, you had these and he was a real character as well. And it's only when I was sort of writing the book that although I knew the story and thought this is a terrible thing, what happened, it's only really when I thought about all those kind of footballing connections that we always do. We always hear the commenta- commentators say, oh, so-and-so played for them and it's revenge or there's this connection or that. It's only when writing all this down and finding some of these other little bits out, these little footballing connections, that it made me feel more deeply what had happened to Jack. So once he'd got that incredible news, for it then to just go silent and for people like Bob Jack not to not be able to tell him the reason, to not be able to look him in the eye, was really heartbreaking. Because it it went on for quite some time. As you say, it was the announced, as it were, back on the, the 6th of October of that year, 1925. Yeah. But it was almost two weeks later, on the mm. 19th of October, when the athletic news um, of the time... Mm. Sort of, they printed a story that all of a sudden didn't include Jack. Yeah, they printed the team. The F- the FA um, selection international selection committee. They met a second time um, on the nineteenth of October, and um, they had some issues to deal with. They had injuries, and um, but Jack wasn't injured. He wasn't suspended. But his name was. Um, there had been speculation that Jack might step into the starting lineup given those injuries and um but no on the 19th he was um scrubbed off the team sheet um and yeah the the um i mean obviously looked at the the minutes from the 5th of october are signed off on the 19th and those that new team is issued on the 19th and um yeah it's published in the athletic news and then um subsequently as the the game approaches and um and and no one tells jack no no one lets him no one says oh we've changed our mind you know no one said gets in touch to say you don't need to pack your bags to travel to ireland so he's wondering what what's going on and he's he said it himself in this interview in 1978 that he he did ask you can imagine the awkwardness of those conversations uh, uh, what's and people not being able to say and um and he said he heard so the the fa come to have a second look at him um it's yeah it's um yeah when you think about that just being given that incredible news and for then for it all to go quiet i mean what a way to treat a a talented young man it's unbelievable really the the game against ireland um Mm. england drew nil nil yeah what i find um crazy at the same time i know it obviously happens with with lower league sides playing on on days where england play um but <laughs> plymouth played that same day whilst england were away in belfast plymouth played bournemouth and boscombe athletic one seven two yeah jack scored twice that day as well didn't he well he, he bounced back in the only way that he he could you know Absolutely. he couldn't complain he couldn't um you know he couldn't 
cause a social media storm. But what he could do was score goals and show people what he could do. And that's that's what he continued to do because his career went from strength to strength. He was only really at the start of it. He he was, you know, he'd seen other players who'd been picked as reserves to to travel um, while at Argyle and seen them progress into the England team. And um, for Jack, that opportunity had been snuffed out. And, you know, it was written about many times afterwards that, you know, that here is one of, if not the best inside lefts in the country. And um, and he went on to score 137 goals for Argyle in 400 games. So, you know, he stamped his mark on the history of the game, despite that England shame. And with Argyle, as you say, scored, scored all those goals. Uh, and finally, come 1930, <laughs> the... The dream was achieved um, where promotion was promotion was achieved. Finally, yeah, at the end of that tortuous decade. Um, yeah, what a moment that must have must have been finally. I mean, really, they should have been up there, you know, many, many years before. Because I think that's where it sort of tipped over. They they obviously they got promoted. Um they they managed to um survive the following season. Jack actually became captain. And I think that's a remarkable achievement in itself. Um, Yeah, he was a hero in Plymouth. Um, That's not to say that there weren't struggles. Um, And, you know, I I think you'd be in denial to think that he didn't face any abuse or discrimination because he would have done. But um, he wasn't the kind of man to ever make a big deal of it, Um, just as he never did about what happened to him with England. but I, I certainly think it hurt and continue to do so. But yeah, we he, he became the first black captain of a football league side, which I think is a re- remarkable achievement in itself. Helped save us from relegation in that first year, that tough year when you've just been promoted, which we, Argyle fans can relate to right now. Um, although it's going okay, it's it's okay. it's it's a bit twitchy. Um, and then the following season with Jack fully in charge. Um, we we reached our highest league position ever, um, fourth in the second division, which again, yeah, no no playoffs, um, and uh, that's we've only matched that once since, and um, uh, but yeah, a, a hell of a career for um, for for Argyle. Yeah, he he had an unfortunate end to his career, didn't he? His, his footballing mm. career, which. Um, which when I read about it, I thought, oh dear, this is painful. But at the same time, I think, well, probably actually happened on a, maybe a, a semi-regular occurrence for players, didn't it? Yeah, um, he was leaping to head the ball. He was a brave, courageous player. And, um, you know, these old heavy leather balls that would get sodden and even you know, weightier uh, when it was wet. Um, he leapt to, to make a header and... The, the lace of this ball had come loose and scraped Ooh. across his eye. And I think at first they didn't think it was too bad. But um, then as the sort of days progressed, you know, Jack's having to go into the eye infirmary and there was a fear that he was going to lose his sight. And he was in and out of hospital for a year. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and he was given this sort of uh, positive report by his uh, doctor uh, and Argyle sort of signed him back up for a, another season but it's still it was still December 1934 before he came back into the first team and 
what I think shows what he was like as a player, that his final goal for Argyle against Fulham was a diving header. And there's a picture of uh, throwing himself at the ball despite that injury. But um, it's clear, though, that he wasn't the same player. His vision was just slightly impaired. Um, His granddaughters say that he couldn't he couldn't look into the sun. So if if you're playing into the sun, it it would affect him massively, which um, as a as a forward, that's, you know, well, it's going to be difficult in any position. Let's face it. You yeah. know, you want to leap up and head the ball and you, you're, you know, totally blinded. Um, so yeah, that was, that was the end. Unfortunate way for a, uh, for a career to end. Uh, but it wasn't mm. to be, wasn't to be the end of his football involvement. Um, no. Although he, he would have a couple of other sort of jobs between um, yes. football, shall we say. Yeah, he ran a pub in in Truro for a few years. Um, <laughs> that didn't go well. Um, uh, there's quite a funny chapter of the book. Um, I think a lot of footballers, some of his mates had uh, run pubs. Um, one of his best mates, Fred Titmus, who who played for England uh, before coming to Argyle, he ran uh, ran a couple of pubs and continued. But um, Jack and his wife, I think his wife probably uh, win uh, thought it'd be a good idea to. Um, um, not run the business into a ground and maybe return back to East London. And um, uh, and Jack loved his roots as well. He, he went back and um, perfect timing just before the outbreak of the Second World War. Let's go back to, let's go from Cornwall to the East End. Um, and he worked in the docks, East India docks as a, a boilermaker. That was his trade. And I mean, that must have been pretty uh, horrendous. And there's a few sort of stories that have been passed down uh, from those years. And um, yeah, he... Um, I mean, he still loved football. He did a bit of scouting for Argyle and he went back there in the 60s um, as a guest of honour and apparently he was, got really emotional because he, he thought they'd have all have forgotten him, but the, the fans oh. gave gave him a standing ovation because, of course, many of them would have seen him play. Those uh, old, and, and, and those older fans would have passed on stories of, of Jack. Yeah. And they remembered the England story. They really did. Um, I've become friends with a 97-year-old fan who... Um, started seeing Argyle in the early 30s. So, but just saw Jack play and, um, wow. it, it stuck with him. And, um, and yeah, he retired as a boilermaker in 65 uh, or 66. And, um, uh, apparently he was getting a bit bored in his retirement, maybe getting under, uh, <laughs> under everyone's feet. They all lived in the same house in East Ham. He went back to East London and, um, yeah, his, uh, his daughter and, uh, husband moved in and they had, um, uh, three daughters who uh, uh, Lynn, um, Leslie and Jill, who um, we've got to know really well, myself and uh, Greg, my fellow campaigner. And um, they all live there. And, um, and, and yeah, it was his daughter, Evelyn, who said, maybe you should go and knock on Ron Greenwood's door at uh, Upton Park and, and have a chat <laughs> and see if there's uh, anything going. And so he went and um, Ron, you know, um, apparently was aware of Jack's prowess as a player and, um, and his football connections. And, gave him a job in the boot room and you know it it, it is a sort of slightly bittersweet ending when you think you know yeah. if you if you just sort of read it you know he had this um great footballing career was denied by England and then goes to West Ham and is cleaning the boots of Bobby Moore Jeff Hurst and Martin Peters and, and it is bittersweet but um he worked at West Ham for 15 years and absolutely loved it it gave him a new lease of life he was in the football club um and obviously kept him you know 
I, I, that's pretty remarkable working there till he was what 81 yeah and well, and in that time he would have seen viv anderson who was a player for mm. for for nottingham forest um at the time 1978 he would go on to take the pitch for england and mm. become that first black player for england i mean what what would jack would have what would have gone through his mind do you think well, uh, we we have a, a little bit of evidence for his thoughts because um, it was actually just after that selection that the Daily Mail interviewed him. And apparently it was a, the granddaughters tell me it was a woman from Devon, an Argyle fan, um, who wrote to the Mail and said, oh, Viv Anderson wasn't the first to be selected. It was our Jack Leslie. Right. And of course, Jack was working at West Ham, so it was easy to track down. Yes. Um, and he never, like I say, never really kind of spoke about it people some people knew about the story because you know that it had been passed down over the years but um uh, he never sort of boasted about his prowess or complained about what happened to him but when the daily mail interviewed him he just told it like it was and he was really pleased for viv anderson and the other players those that had, were coming through at west ham who you know um we all know what the terraces were like and how rife racism was yeah. across many, if not all clubs, um, including West Ham, but West Ham also um, brought through many black players like, you know, Addy Coker and John and Clyde Charles, Clyde Best, of course, who remembered Jack very fondly. And, um, and Trevor Brooking talked a bit about this, who remembered Jack as a great mate, but he didn't, Jack never really talked to about his football career and certainly not the England um, so he, Trevor Brooking was shocked mm. to, to hear it, um, but have really fond memories of Jack um, and said when Viv Anderson was selected, it must have brought it all back up for Jack. That that feeling that um, what might have been and the fact that he was Jack said it himself in that interview. He, he wasn't a boasting man, but he said I was good enough and yeah. he knew that he was um, and but he was pleased. There's there's no sort of bitterness against those who were coming through. He was pleased that those players were getting the opportunity that he didn't get. And he said that um, in another, there's a short interview in a book by um, the, the journalist, Brian Wilno. So um, yeah, it's, it's moving to read, read that, but it's also, it does make you think that it, that it must've stuck with him. And it certainly did with the family. His daughter was really angry about what happened to him and um and like i say the the granddaughters ha have been you know it doesn't change um what happened but the recognition has made a really positive impact for them yeah i can i can well imagine and the uh, the book viv anderson has actually done the foreword for it How that was, was it he's speaking with him he was he's been a supporter from the start in that first bbc report they interviewed Viv Anderson. It, it made sense. And Viv was, you know, surprised that he hadn't heard the story of Jack Leslie before and felt that those, those players from the past should be celebrated. And um, because it can have a positive impact today to know our, our, our history. And um, yeah, that was quite mind blowing to, because I've, I'm, old enough to just about remember you know vaguely remember that moment but okay. certainly be very be very aware of viv anderson as a player when i was a kid um 
and playing for England. And um, um, after, you know, 78, when he was selected and be aware of what was going on on the terraces at the, uh, at the time. So to, to hear, you know, I got to meet him and do a little interview at the start of the campaign. And then he's contributed to this. It's um, because he's such a key part of the story, a part of our football history. Mm. And also a key part of the story because without his selection, Jack's story wouldn't have got that attention and we'd have very little evidence from his own mouth, which we have through that interview, which is um, when you read it, I've read it in full several times now yeah. and it, it, it always brings a lump in my throat. Yeah. Well, take us to back to, to Home Park <laughs> um, and the, uh, the statue. Um, which you, you described at at the uh, the beginning of the chat, and this this pictures within the book of of what it looks like. How how did a statue like that come about? Well, we we decided that that's what we were going to do. That we we felt that it would be it would be a really positive thing to celebrate someone who um, not only was a Plymouth Argyle legend, but a bona fide legend who. Mm the kind of legend that club legend that deserves a statue in any case, but also the significance of his story uh, means it's, it's a a story that should be told more widely. And this monument could do that. And that was always our aim. So we, the fact that we broke through our target and raised more money meant that we were able to be more ambitious with what we could do. And we went through an exhaustive process, Greg, myself, the granddaughters and committee of um, supporters who helped in that and narrowed it down. Did interviews, And we, we chose uh, Andy Edwards, who is a phenomenal sculptor. He's done many football statues and others. Um, and he just kind of um, got what we were doing and really threw himself into it, not just in, in terms of, creating a good statue it, he came up with that pose okay. um but but that was done through conversations with us and particularly the granddaughters and looking at all their photos and and um and having all those conversations and uh, w- w- with us and it um and he really helped with all the kind of their storytelling on the plinth with photos etched in granite so that photo of the wheeling away goal scoring in 1925 a picture from the boot room and a picture of jack and sammy black um who i always want to talk about as part of the story because they were such a partnership and stayed friends um and um yeah uh, 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 and we just set to work and it was it, it took some time but it was worth spending that time because the moment when the granddaughters visited Andy Edwards studio for the first time and the one show filmed it and it was okay. um they were walking through the door to see what Andy had done um it was still the work in progress but his you know his um it, it, we had the pose and his obviously his features and you know they they immediately welled up and it was a very emotional moment um and, and one of great relief for us <laughs> it's, it's quite a responsibility and for Andy yeah very um, much and um and we thought it looked great but obviously it had to you know it had to be their granddad and um yeah it was um yeah we're we're all really pleased with the statue and the feedback 
the reaction that people have whenever I've been, you know, to a home game or I'll, I'll, I'll head down and, and hang out a bit before. And, um, you know, always, like, if there's anyone that isn't sure about the story, I will tell it to them. Um, yeah. and, um, it's just, it's been great. People away fans come and get pictures as well. It's, um, yeah, it's a, a, a wonderful thing. Great. It was, it's been a long time since I've been to Plymouth. I have to be honest. Um, but, but when I next get down there, it's certainly somewhere where I'll, uh, where I shall direct myself to, uh, to go and see it in, in the flesh as it were. Yes, definitely should. Well, Jack, unfortunately passed away on the 25th of November, 1988, Mm. but, but the story lives on within the book. Within the website as well, um, there's a lot more information on there. It's chaclesley.co.uk, I believe. That's right. We've always tried to sort of, you know, maintain and update it. And um, because this, it just keeps rolling on with the, um, I thought with the statue unveiling last October, that would kind of not exactly be it, but um, but it's great when, you know, schools get in touch and want us to go and speak. We spoke to academies in Plymouth and West Ham, um, and it's great in engaging young people in the story. So we, we, we keep that updated as much as we can and on social media. And, um, so yeah, have a look at jacklesley.co.uk. There's, um, uh, lots of stuff on there. The book is called The Lion Who Never Roared, Jack Leslie, the star robbed of England glory. There was just one thing at, at the very beginning of the book I wanted to mention, uh, in the introduction. Mm. It says, we're late in telling these stories but at least they're being told uh, it's never too late, which I think is a, uh, which is a great way for all of us to, to sort of look back on history and these things. I, I think so. I think, um, you know, I, I, I never want to, and Greg and I and people who've been involved in the campaign, you never want to say unequivocally, isn't this brilliant that this is happening now? Cause it, it, it is, but, I always have that feeling that I wish I'd known that story when I was growing up in Plymouth and going to watch Argyle. And when I started to see black players come into the uh, Argyle team, like, um, you know, legend of ours, Ronnie Moje, who's our, our only player to ever scored at score at Wembley, despite the fact that I've seen them play at Wembley three times. <laughs> um, and, but I was there the day that he scored and we, it was a playoff final in 96 and it was amazing. And, but he, came from London down to Plymouth and was embraced uh, as a legend. But he he did say what a difference it would have made had he known Jack's story to know that there was that legacy there. Um, And it wasn't celebrated back then. And um, so, you know, it's great to have those celebrations, but um, it's, it's important to remember what that journey was and what he, um, you know, you can never understand what he went through. Um, entirely but to have some just reflect on that i think yeah. but yes you it's 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 important these stories are told absolutely the lion who never roared uh it's available uh, through pitch publishing and and bookshops up and down the country i've no doubt um ideal this sort of time just in in time for christmas for for any football fan or any one who's interested in in the history of the game Matt, thank you very much for your time. It's much appreciated. And I just wish you all all the very best with the book and, and with thank the campaign. You. Thank you so much. I, I love chatting. I love talking about it. And I, I really appreciate the fact that you've read the book and that you enjoyed it. I love hearing that. It makes it all worthwhile. And um, 
yeah, I hope um, the spirit of Jack Leslie flows through Plymouth Argyle this season. And uh, I, I think that despite what happened to him, in, into the England team too. Amen to that. My many thanks to Matt there, Matt Tiller. Much appreciated. The book, Jack Leslie, The Lion That Never Roared, is available at Pitch Publishing, who I'd like to thank for connecting me to Matt. Uh, You'll find the book in all good bookstores at Pitch Publishing, Amazon too. And as I mentioned, it is an ideal Christmas present, either to yourself or someone that you know. Now, you heard that Jack grew up in East London. It's not far from West Ham's old Upton Park ground. Well, a short distance from there is Canning Town. That's a a little part of London. On a house there is a blue plaque that celebrates where Jack grew up. I took a trip there to have a, a quick look at it. Uh, You can find the photos on the Three Lions podcast social media pages. I think it's safe to say that that area has changed a bit since Jack grew up. If you'd like to go and visit it or you're in the area, head to 12 Gerald Road, Canning Town, East London. That's it for me for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you've missed any recent ones, you can tune in at your podcast provider of choice or threelionspodcast.com. There are the recent Lionesses episodes. There's the episodes for the Euro Draw uh, and a couple of Your England Journey episodes too. Plenty for you to while away some hours with. I'll be back with you soon with another episode. So until then, take care of yourselves. Cheers. Cheers.